to V-Back Birth Stories, a podcast where Australians share their journey to a vaginal birth after cesarean. We are a safe haven for women to share their own V-Back journeys and through these personal experiences, educate and empower listeners. I'm your host, Mel. And I'm your host, Steph. And this is V-Back Birth Stories. Today we are very lucky to be joined by Professor Hannah Darlin of Western Sydney University. She's a leading midwifery researcher in Australia and since 2020 she's been conducting a study into birth in the time of COVID. So today we're here to talk to her about this and a lot more. Thanks Hannah for joining us on the show. My pleasure. So we're always hearing a lot about your current research and we'd like to actually start today, I suppose, by hearing some of what brought you into midwifery practice some 30 years ago and how that journey and interest into that area began. Yes, well, I was born in Yemen and my mother was a midwife and so I just grew up around birth and babies. My earliest memories were being in a playpen in the corner of an antenatal clinic, you know, playing with a kidney dish and a spatula. So it was, I guess you could say I was kind of born into it. And I really can't ever remember not intending to be a midwife. When I was 10, I saw my first birth and was quite blown away. As you can imagine, you would be at 10. And then when I was 12, I helped to catch my neighbor's baby and she was having her third girl and when she gave birth she looked at her realized it was a girl and said take her away and uh, I remember being so upset because I knew why the reason was she hadn't had a son she'd be divorced and her husband would find another wife because she had to produce sons to be of value and I just remember taking this little baby to the window and feeling the kind of rage of inequality for women in this world and also the utter and unbelievable magic of new life and it was at the same time that the sun was rising over the middle east and the minarets were calling and there was just this very spellbinding memory in this young woman on the brink of womanhood really i was i was literally going to be turning 12 so they named her hannah after me so baby hannah was born on the 1st of july and i turned 12 on the 6th of july and so it was a very profound moment in my life and then when i was 15 i came back to australia i'd basically been doing correspondence school my whole life so that was a huge shock Mm. to come back into you know being the (laughs) only one in your class to 1500 students And um, I did nursing because it was the only pathway I could take in those days. And then as soon as I finished my nursing, I went to England to follow in my mother's footsteps. My mother was actually one of the, called a midwife midwife. She worked in an artist's house, but it it actually is St. Friedswide's mission. And she worked with Jennifer Worth, who wrote the, the series, lived in that wonderful home and filled me with stories of, you know, cycling over the cobblestones and catching undiagnosed twins in tiny little flats at the top of you know winding stairs and so I went back and I then did my midwifery in uh, England and um, pretty much that was it I was on the pathway that I've never left amazing oh that's yeah that's really interesting very amazing and your own births um Hannah were you I guess excited when it was time for you to have your own children being a midwife yourself Yeah, no, I I was very excited, but I think, you know, having your own baby is a very, very different thing to helping others and being having it in your head as knowledge. And I think I went through all of the experiences that are 
first time mother goes through. I went to 42 weeks with all my babies. So I experienced that whole waiting for that baby to come. And my first baby, um, Lydia, all planned home births. But, you know, after quite a few hours of labor, the memory is broken. I had thick, thick meconium. In fact, it looked like a lava flow. It was so thick. So we had to go into hospital and um, I had a very long, hard labor, but a very triumphant pushed her out, felt that absolute iron woman hear me roar. And then I had two very tragic events one year apart. I had a full term baby boy die um, after a very long labor, but in, I had to end up in hospital and end up with a cesarean. And he um, died a couple of days after his birth. Nobody really knew why. They told me it was just one of those things. I then got pregnant again a year later. I had another baby boy. He came out as well and he didn't grieve. And then they discovered after much investigation that this was a rare genetic disorder that has, was X-linked. So the boys got it, the girls carried it. And then two years after that, I had my last daughter, Bronte, who came roaring into our lives. And uh, so I would say I look back over my birth experiences and I've pretty much been thrown all of it from normal birth to cesarean to massive hemorrhage to losing a baby to multiple miscarriages to failed IVF. But all of it has made me a better midwife. And I think I really do sit in great, I guess, great sympathy and, and love with women who are going through some of the tough times that you do go through when you when you um, have babies we we can't ever guarantee doesn't you know being a midwife doesn't protect you from that that's what happens sometimes but I'm forever grateful for that first birth I think you know I I think that because I ended up then having to go on and have cesareans because of the complications that occurred and I always look back at that first birth to be my, yeah, but I, you know, I did it. So I really get that I did it. I really get the, that giving birth to your baby is very profound, but I also get needing to have a necessary cesarean section. Since last year, you've been conducting the birth in the time of COVID study and you've surveyed midwives, care providers and birthing women across Australia. Is that right? Yes. So I, um, we began by interviewing women across Australia and midwives and student midwives. And then from that, we built three surveys. We did a survey of student midwives, survey of midwives, and we did a survey of women who were pregnant from March last year up until we, we really went to the end of the year and then women who'd had a baby since March. So we, we looked at women who were pregnant and women who'd had a baby. We ended up with nearly 5,000 women who responded to that survey, which was wonderful. We also asked women if they'd be willing for follow-up surveys and we had a lot of women say they were interested and we're now doing the follow-up surveys. And so far, we think we'll probably hit over a thousand women responding to six and 12 month survey. So we've got an enormous amount of data that we're analysing at the moment. And I also work very closely with a group called the well, like Queensland Flood Team. So this is the team of researchers, mainly psychologists who did research around the Queensland flood when it happened and looking at impact of objective and subjective stress on mental health and on child development and temperament. We've embedded a whole lot of questions that are going to be able to look at what are the things that protect you from future impacts? What are the things that we as health providers need to be much more aware of and provide more support for women. In terms of the study, um, Birth in the Time of COVID study, what are some of the findings that you could share with us? Anything that's surprising from those findings or any, any commonalities that you'd like to share? 
Um, unsurprisingly, it was a very stressful event. The most distressing part was not being able to have the people that you wanted at your birth. So, for example, if you wanted to have your partner and one other, a doula or a sister or a mother and that. So that was probably the, the greatest distress that women experienced there are some immense positive things which have really been quite interesting and I hope we learned some really good lessons and that was the postnatal period. So women talked very much about how surprised they were, how nice it was when it was just them and their partner in the postnatal ward and also that people weren't coming over all the time when they were at home. They really enjoyed that postnatal bubble. They found women said that they fell more in love with their partner, they were more relaxed, their babies fed well and ironically, or not ironically, but not surprisingly, midwives and student midwives all universally said the same thing. They all noticed that the postnatal period was wound back to this lovely bubble and that women did better and breastfeeding seemed to go better. So I think the lesson we need to take from this is that we have to cherish those first weeks, hours and weeks after birth. We, we really need to protect the bubble. We need to talk to people about, you know, you know, not coming, having everybody come in and handing the baby around. And what is the impact on that, on, on unsettling the baby? However, I would say now what we're going through in New South Wales, where there has been a lot of anxiety around the fact that in some cases, partners were either prevented from being at the birth or were told within half an hour they had to leave and couldn't come back postnatally and I wrote a piece in the Guardian saying we're already not learning the lessons of last year the lessons of last year tell us that actually having your partner and only a partner because we have to have some sensible balance in this is a really positive thing and if a man or a woman or whoever your partner is has been through a long hard sweaty intimate labor getting him home within half an hour is hardly doing anything about the risk of COVID if there's COVID there COVID's been shared. There's been heavy lobbying from women as well around that. And then the government came out and said, no, women should be able to have their partners, which has been good. And I hope it's starting to have an impact. I definitely hope that that filters down. When you have these sorts of directives from, say, for example, New South Wales Health had always stated that the birth, women could have their birth partner, but then there was a disconnect from that directive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't what was going on at some hospitals and we found different hospitals doing different things. How do you explain that disconnect and who was giving that authority on the ground for that to happen? What was the justification there? So some of it is very understandable. So if you are in southwest Sydney and western Sydney where there are very high incidents of COVID and some very sick people, and let's not dismiss this is a serious issue, that the Delta variant is a game changer. It is making young people very, very sick. So I don't want to downplay the COVID pandemic. It is serious. We need to take it seriously. But what happens, I think, when this sort of thing happens in healthcare is people get this sort of panicked response and they make up policy on the run. And sometimes that changes almost daily. There could be two hospitals, you know, mere kilometres apart that are doing different things. So that's, first of all, problematic because you need to logically think, what is the risk minimisation this strategy is delivering? And how can I explain this and get the population on side to cooperate to do their bit, perhaps get COVID tested before you come into hospital, et cetera, minimise the risk and then just, you know, apply a bit of logic to it. So I think what happened is everyone was doing their own thing. Women, of course, talk, 
women go online, women find out that everyone's doing different things. And then the women got very angry, rightly so. And so that lobbying has made the government come in and go, come on, you know, everybody use your common sense. This is not just a, you, you think about it. Having a baby is the only normal physiological thing we do in a hospital. Everything else is to do with pathology. It's to do with something going wrong. So we, we absolutely need to understand that this is not just a physical event. It's a psychological, cultural, spiritual, social event. We also need to think about the ramifications of, you know, the stress imposed on those early end of pregnancy and, and those early days of, of parenting and the impact that that can have on child development, on mental health, and on all the ripples that can go into the community. So we need to think broader when we think about pregnancy and birth. For women who are presenting to hospitals now or, or perhaps about to go into labour, what's your advice to them in, in ensuring that those rights are upheld? So if you're in New South Wales, I mean, it's going to be different to anywhere else. So there'll be states where it's pretty much business as, as usual. Make sure that you get the um, exemption letter that seems to be being required by a lot of women to get their partners to come in. Um, I find that really problematic because they're never, never denied. But then if you don't have the letter, they may be denied. And that's really disadvantaging migrant women, women who don't have English, the first, lang first language, who don't understand those processes and what they are about. But, but do take that seriously. A lot of hospitals now are, are recommending COVID tests from 37 weeks onwards every 72 hours. So, you know, you and your partner take that seriously. I'd say to women, this is your time to hunker down at home and nest. Don't, don't go exposing yourself out there. Minimise that. If you can do click and collect, if you can, you know, do Woolies drop-off or Coles drop-off, absolutely try to reduce your risk right now so that you can have the best possible chance of not having that taken away from you in hospital. Oh, just on what you were saying there, a, a point about particularly migrant women or women who English may not be their first language, how does that play out in, in these kinds of situations where they may or may not have a partner with them? Why is that important for them to have advocates? And it's not just the partner for many migrant communities. It, it's the mum or it's the sister. It's the mother-in-law. So sometimes they want several people in there. So first of all, birth in many migrant communities is a very much a, an event where women are involved and men have recently been involved. So that leads to even more anxiety around the fact that they don't have their female relatives with them when that would be normal. But, you know, we've got to be very good at, providing the information in their language and we have to get to community leaders to make sure that the community leaders um, explain. We need to bear in mind that if you're a refugee and you've come from a war-torn country and you've currently got the army on the streets outside your house, we need to bear in mind that that can be very traumatising. That can lead to distrust. That can lead to people not being honest about where they've been or, or about, you know, having COVID. So, if we're not aware of all these things and we don't make those very, very important efforts, we will end up in a much worse place, not to mention the mental health of migrant people who are already often don't have their family with them. Her parents may be stuck overseas who are coming from the birth. They're already feeling isolated. And now on top of that, we're going to take away their last comfort and support in birth 
and then they're going to try and negotiate and navigate without English as their first language. I mean, it, it's massively important. And until unless you are a migrant and you walk that road, we can't or I can't as someone who comes from a white privileged background possibly grasp it. We've got to do much better than we are currently doing. There aren't those frameworks currently in, in place that you can see that support migrants. I think they're coming. I think that, I think they're yeah. coming, but they're coming yeah. late. It's a bit like, you know, the announcement that pregnant women should get vaccinated, which I totally support because I think the evidence is now mounting. But then when women went online, they couldn't actually get a spot because if they clicked under 40, they were booted out of the, uh, you know, the automatic system. So often policy and, um, and enlightenment limps mm. after the decision, unfortunately. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Hannah, about antenatal care. For example, how women were denied support in that antenatal process, particularly ultrasounds where partners were not allowed. Is that something that's come up in terms of feedback in your study and in any suggestions that you have from there? Definitely. You know, women were distressed not being able to have their partners. Their partners are distressed about not being there. And ultrasound, look, I don't, I do not, I do not understand the ultrasound issue. Then ultrasound, most women have ultrasounds outside of a hospital. So that issue isn't there. There's nothing wrong with a partner putting a mask on and sitting there and not being an, an added risk. So the ultrasound issue, I think, is complete crazy when it comes to any nail visits what i what has really surprised me is how few people facetime in a visit so if you can't have the partner there then get your phone out and facetime your partner into the meeting so there's a feeling of some presence so while we talk about telehealth and if you look up the images of telehealth they're always these happy smiling people interacting and you even see images where people are reaching through screens so it shows how connected you are <laughs> The reality is the majority of women have been on a phone with their midwife or their midwife's not even offered them the option of, of a FaceTime their partner in. So we could do so much better with the restrictions we've got with just a little bit of common sense and you know, innovation. It's not hard. That's a really good suggestion, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of telehealth, um, as you were mentioning there, do you think a phone call is really enough in that antenatal period or how could we improve on that? So I think for some women, I've got to say, um, if we look at the data, some women, particularly if they've had baby, they've got a few babies, a few children, they're actually finding it quite nice to not have to go into the hospital as much because you're dealing with childcare and dealing with parking. But if it's your first baby, you know, and you really feel like, you know, this is the great unknown, um, there can be a lot of anxiety. Interesting what's come up is being women who've said to us, you know, when I had my first baby and they told me I had to have the glucose tolerance test, they told it to me almost in a way that if you don't have this, your baby could die. Like, this is critical. You can't even, like, the pressure was on. Now this, the, the COVID's happened, they're all going, well, we, we'll just avoid the glucose tolerance test this time, so don't worry about that. So suddenly we've gone from your baby could die, you've got to do this, to, well, we can just avoid that test. So there's a really interesting perspective if you're a woman going, we used to take my blood pressure every time, and now you're just saying, well, no, we won't worry about that, or go go and go to the pharmacy or buy a, buy a monitor. Some women have been taking their own blood pressure. So it does show how ritualistic we are in the way we deliver the essentialness of what we do. But I would say the majority of women would like to be seen and they would like to see a face and they would like to know the person is going to be at their birth. 
And I think that a majority of the connection, if it's been a telephone call, Antinelli, it's been a telephone call, not a face. So why are we not doing more Skyping, Zooming, putting that human touch in? The other interesting thing that's come out of our research is that women tell us the midwives who, if you sat in a room with a woman, you would, how are you going? How are you finding this? What's your day been like, right? The chit-chat, the chit-chat that forms connections goes when a person is in there. And they cut to the chase. You know, how's your baby moving? All the list stuff, which of course are important, but there has been a bit of the shedding of the, the social and psychological stuff. So that's something that we've really got to learn from. If we're going to use telehealth, and no doubt it's here to stay in some form, we need to find out who does it work best for, when does it work best, how does it work best, not one size fits all. Certainly things like we know that in clinic appointments, usually midwives will screen for things like domestic violence and and something like that could be quite difficult to to monitor or scan for, I suppose, in this kind of environment. So what's been happening with that's been very interesting. For some, they've not been asking the questions because they're worried that the perpetrator could be listening. So we could be putting women at greater risk by asking them domestic violence questions, et cetera, over a phone that a perpetrator could be listening to. So for some, some cases, midwives have decided not to ask the questions, which means we've got a whole lot of women who haven't been asked those questions in a time where we know domestic violence is increasing because women are now they've got nowhere to go they've got they're locked down in this stressful situation with this person who may be the perpetrator of violence so yes we've also known and the midwives have said to us there have been some really bad situations where they've because there hasn't been that face-to-face contact that ability to ask some of those questions, they've missed some very big stuff, which has led to adverse outcomes. So no doubt there will be some paying the price for, for this time. Speaking about midwives, you mentioned in the Guardian article that about midwives breaking the rules in terms of like sneaking parents into neonatal units and things like that. What is it like for those midwives at the moment? What are you hearing from midwives? Well, interestingly, we're about to put the survey back out again because we think this time's more stressful than last time. But the midwives are telling us, yes, they're they're trying to cut corners. They're trying to sneak people in. They're so distressed because somebody in an office may make that decision and then they dictate it down and the manager tells the midwives, but the midwives are the ones that operationalize it. So the midwives are the ones that have to face the distress. The midwives are the, the bad people because they're the ones that have to be the enforcers of it. So it is very distressing for midwives. It's quite interesting. Something else very interesting has come out. So we've seen a huge increase in women going to private midwives. We've had private midwives who can booked out till next March. We know that women who are cared for by the private midwives, there's a whole bunch more flexibility in the relationship. The midwives really don't change an awful lot. They negotiate with the woman to what feels safe for them both. That's been interesting. We've also noticed that in private obstetrics, we're seeing quite a bit of that because obstetricians in private obstetrics have a huge amount of power. Midwives have told us and women have told us that, that the obstetrician will come and say, yeah, let their partner in or let, let, let their doula in. So they hold power. So in some ways, there's been a lot of protection in private midwifery practice, which is autonomous and outside the system and private obstetric practice where obstetricians have that autonomy and power. But what's been really interesting is midwifery group practice in the system that has where the midwives work for the 
hospital, that's been impacted because they've had to follow the rules. So many of the women who have had group practice are feeling they're not seeing their midwives much. They don't know them as well because midwives work for a system. So for me, it's been really interesting study in who holds the power and how absolutely powerful and controlling of birth it is when you when you birth in a system that does not allow for individuality and flexibility and midwives who are down the lower rungs in that system of power are affected in the system but outside the system you're starting to see the real potential for very woman-centered individualized care there has been obviously an increase in the demand for home birth since the beginning of the pandemic, but even prior to that, there was an increase. I guess on that point, have you seen or heard of an increase in free birthing? So women who perhaps cannot afford to pay for a private midwife um, to have a home birth, are they opting to free birth at this time? Definitely. And um, we've had quite a few women respond to our survey that have either considered it or are still seeking a midwife but not sure they can find one. And if they can't find one, will they intend to free birth? So we've certainly got that data. The thing about free birth, it's very hard because it's not actually data that's collected. So we actually have no way of actually knowing how many people are free birthing and whether it's rising. But anecdotally, yes. And in our midwife survey and in the main survey, we've asked the question and, and it appears that they know of more women who are now choosing to do it alone. The thing is, is, there's only a very small number of midwives, you know, perhaps 200 midwives in Australia who support homebirth. Well, they're booked out till March. They can't take any more on. And, you know, so women are often driven to thinking, well, I either go into that system and, and risk the psychological, emotional trauma, or I try and do it myself. I think it's it's a terrible situation to be in. I think it is much safer to have a midwife at your birth than to do it yourself. But I really sympathise with the kind of between a rock and a hard place that women are in. What could policy do to support private practising midwives? Well, it's something policy should have done decades ago, which is to ensure privately practicing midwives, which is to fund home birth, which is to respect midwives, which is to promote this model of care. So when things like this happen, there are a whole lot more out there in the community providing that service. We have by stealth ended up in the situation that we're in by deliberate, you know, non-addressing of what women want. Women have asked for midwives, women have asked for continuity care, women have asked for more home birth, women have asked for more birth, birth centre care. And what are we doing? We're just constantly putting obstacles in front of all of those things. So that's one aspect. The second is that we have learned from around the world that what seems to happen when COVID hit is that everybody went into putting everything in the hospital when it would have been far more sensible to have had more community services. So a perfect example is, you know, in New South Wales, Ride Hospital every year scores the highest in satisfaction from women in the survey because they have maximum continuity of care. It's a freestanding midwife-led unit. The best outcomes in New South Wales come from that hospital. So when COVID hit, what did they do? They turned it into a COVID clinic and they shut it down. And that tells you exactly what do we think of women, how important do we think birth is, how much do we really want to invest in them, and how much we actually distrust anyone that's outside the obstetric gaze of birth within a hospital system. So if COVID's taught us anything, let's support privately practicing midwife and alternative ways of birthing 
and let's really get into place a good community-based primary healthcare system that allows women to come into hospital when they need it but stay out of hospital when they don't. So, um, Hannah, what what can we do? What can our listeners do to help this situation? A lot of the stuff that you've sort of talked about is very much on the theme of birth time for those of us who have seen the documentary. What can women do, our listeners, to help bring about this change? Absolutely. Fantastic question because there's nothing worse than feeling helpless. Being Feeling helpless is what really really you know does your head in in the end so get involved get into the breaking of silence write to your local member get involved in in the consumer organization you know maternity coalition maternity network australia home birth australia be back groups get involved and then i would say you have a lot more rights than you think so stand up for them and voice them and you you know, ask for what you want and you decline what you don't want because you still have that. COVID has not stopped the ability for you to determine what happens with your body. Really important people understand that. Your body is your body. What happens to you and your baby during pregnancy and birth is your domain and nothing rule that. And I guess, you know, maybe I hope everybody knows about the best survey that we have going out now, the birth experience study. We've now got 7,000 women responded. It's the biggest ever survey in Australia ever undertaken of birth in the last five years. And we're just translating it into six other languages to get into all of the other communities to hear the voices of women who weren't necessarily born in our country. So please respond to our best best survey. We would would love that. (laughs) We have shared it a number of times. We've got it saved on our little website. So we will definitely push that for for women who are listening. And it's essentially if you've given birth in the last five years, you're um, in Australia, you can take part intake, you can take part in this study. And I guess the aim of this study, it's just a continuation with up from birth time with birth yeah. time in fact birth time's a partner with us and then all the consumer organizations have supported us and uh, you know wonderfully also helped fund the translation of the surveys and we've got a poet working with the word women's words to turn them into poetry we've got oh. dreams to bring it to a screen to a play and then we will of course take it to government to show a true picture of what is going on for birth but i can give you a glimpse into that and say that you know nearly a third of women in australia are seeing their births as traumatic that's absolutely unacceptable We do speak to a lot of these women who have come from traumatic births, particularly their first birth experiences in a time like this where they may be going back to do it again and reclaim their births. How can we advise them or reassure them that they're still able to do that within these boundaries? Remember, there is nothing anyone can do to your body. I just keep on emphasising this. There is nothing. No one can make you do anything. No one can make you choose something in birth or they, they may be able to say you can't have your entire family come into the birth room. Now, that's understandable. But nobody can make you choose something during birth you don't want. Nobody can force you into a treatment you don't want. So use your voice. Don't put up with it. I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of mental health issues for the next few years and we need to be there for women. Uh, We need to be there for the trauma. We need to do an awful lot about supporting and fixing. And also let's learn the lessons from this pandemic. It's not going to be our last. And let's get it even better next time. Let's make sure we do the right thing by women in the future. Otherwise, what a waste of a 
fabulous opportunity. It's why we're doing the BITOX study. I think that's really good points that you've made there for women to feel that your voice is heard, to make change, essentially get involved. You know, perhaps you're not ready right now because you're about to give birth, but the birth experience study is still live. You can still write to your local MPs afterwards and, and share your experience because we need the voices of women for change to even be considered, I think, for a better future for maternity care in Australia going forward um, and also around the world. And when we send out the next or the 2021 BITOX survey, the birth and time of COVID survey next, hopefully in the next week, please answer that and then make your voice heard because this will also feed back to policymakers and government. Give every single woman a named midwife who can be her advocate and can be her supporter through it. And I think we could cut birth trauma in half, not to mention our impact on our cesarean section rate. You know, the latest data was released just this week, or yeah, it's the beginning of this week. 36% of women now in Australia have a cesarean section. I remember being horrified when it was 25%. I mean, 36%. It's just utterly and totally unacceptable. And we're failing women badly, and we've got to do something about it. What what do you think is the reason for that for those kinds of increases in numbers? Is it is it a fear like sort of sort of this risk management that goes on a lot in hospitals and a fear of that litigation and multi multifactorial? I, I think yeah, I think we've lost our ability to understand normal. I think we've lost a lot of our skills to facilitate normal. I think midwives have very little power in this country and therefore are constantly dominated by an obstetric model. I think the private sector, which has doubled pretty much all the intervention rates, it's unregulated, yet the taxpayer funds it. So how do we allow that a lack of accountability? Um, I think we have an utter fear of, of death and we lose perspective. I think women are so used to hearing trauma, they think that's normal. So, you know, if you go to a mother's group and four out of six women have had cesareans or forceps, then that's normal. You go to the Netherlands where, you know, maybe one out of that six had a cesarean, that's not normal. Mm. So we've got multiple factors that are contributing towards, you know, basically a juggernaut that is hurtling. I have no idea now where this will stop. But also we've got all this emerging research about the impacts of epigenetic changes, of the microbiome, of of babies being born early and then impacting their development, their education later on. So we are just creating this sort of the waves of a tsunami that are just absolutely going ahead of us and we have got such disrespect for one of the oldest, most profoundly fine-tuned physiological functions on earth and that is to give birth. We think we're so smart that we can do it better for so many women. It's just Mm -hmm. ignorant and blind, and I would just draw a total correlation between our attitudes to climate change as well. We're doing the same thing. We think we're so smart, and we are just destroying life as we do it. What's something simple like obstetricians and midwives can see, like in terms of understanding physiological birth, if they just attend a home birth in their training, wouldn't that be an eye-opener in itself, um, <laughs> just just like start from the basic, the, the physiological birth, and then go from there and then go, okay, well, how do I make that happen in my practice if that's what the woman wants, the woman I'm caring for wants? How can I make that happen? Well, first of all, see it from start to finish. Maybe. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it would be wonderful. In, in England, in many medical training schools, they have to go out and attend home births to get an understanding of it. So I think that would be wonderful. 
yeah, I, I remember having a medical student at a home birth a few years ago and they'd not seen a birth yet and they wanted to come see a home birth first. I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. And it was this really amazing situation where this woman had had babies before. She was totally knew what she was doing. She wanted no disturbance. She wanted us in the next room and she wanted us just as a safeguard to be there. And we sat in the next room listening to her, drinking tea, eating cheese and biscuits with our medical student who was just sitting there going, how is this clinical care? And then myself and my colleague, as her voice changed, we stood up together, we walked in, we fished the baby out of the water, gave it to the mother, and the medical student was just standing there and, and how did you know? How did you know? Because if we allow ourselves to just watch women, listen to women, study women, trust women, respect women, we'll actually discover that they're the biggest expert in the room. And our job is to work around that, facilitate to sometimes, you know, you know, sometimes we need to do a few things to kind of unblock the uh, pathway to birth. But most of the time women have got this if we provide them the environment, the trust, the respect and the silence with which they can do it. Yeah, that reminds me of a famous quote um, from Michelle Audent, the French obstetrician. You probably know it, Hannah, and you probably know it better than I do, but it was something about the best midwife is a midwife sitting in the corner knitting and not interrupting the woman. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I crochet a birth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think it'll be really useful for women out there listening at the moment. Thank you for all of the work that you do in the space and gathering that data for women so that we can enact policy change and we can move forward and improve maternity care in Australia. So thank yeah. you. Oh, thanks for your wonderful work. And, you know, there's nothing more powerful than hearing other women's stories. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful stuff. We need to get the positivity about birth out there because it's such a drama. It's there's so much negativity, but it can be the most powerful thing that you'll ever do in your life. And thank you for sharing as well your own experiences as well. And again, like Steph said, and for all the work that you're doing in this space, we will direct our listeners, obviously, to your page. I think your Facebook page is also really great. You share lots of articles that are really relevant. So we'll pop that in the show notes as well so people can stay up to speed. You actually do have a Facebook page for the studies that you're doing as well, so we can link yes. them in as well. We have a COVID page, we have a BEST survey, and then I have a public page, which is Hannah Darlin Midwifery Services, and then I have a, I have a private page. So, yeah, I've got quite a few pages. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link them all up. <laughs> Well, thank you, Hannah. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. If you'd like to feature on our podcast and have VBAC-specific information you'd like to share with our listeners, please email us at vbackbirthstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.